kids, let me ask you this question. What would it be like if summer never ended? If school just never came? I remember uh, as a kid, yeah, Sadie's got it. You just throw your hands up like, yes. I remember just sort of thinking how great that would be as a kid. I would think, man, I love summer. You know, as the, the summer wound down, I would kind of get bummed out. Adults, what if Mondays never came? What if Mondays were just like your weekends and they kind of went on and on? Yeah, the adults are like, woohoo! Uh, you know, we think about that for, for just a little bit, and pretty soon you think and you go, well, wait a minute though, no education is a bad thing. Like not learning things is a bad thing. Do I get an amen from the teacher? Yes. Yes. No? <laughs> and no job is a bad thing, right? No education and no job, those are actually really, really bad things. It sort of seems great for a moment, but then we begin to think about it and go, well, maybe it's not so terrible. Here's, here's what this morning's about in a nutshell. It's not only possible to be thankful for Mondays and the start of school, but it can be your great joy. Okay, now, some of you don't believe me, and you're like, you're going to have to show me that one. But you can have a great joy experience going to work on Monday and having school start up for some of you in just a few weeks. We talk a lot about discipleship around this church because that's what a New Testament Christian church ought to be talking about. Uh, we use this little word picture that kind of helps show us some things. Uh, whenever you hit a play button on your phone, I listen to a lot of music on my phone. And whenever you hit that play button, there's sort of an act of faith. There's an active participation for you to hit that button. And then a whole bunch of things happen that are kind of magical to you. You don't really understand them or know how they work or whatever. Um, they just sort of grab music from a cloud somewhere and it puts it through your ears and you enjoy the music or the podcast or whatever you're listening to. Uh, that play button is, is a little picture of our faith with God. There are things God asks us to do by faith. Push the green triangle. Okay. And we do it. And God works miracles in our life. God's, God does these things in our life. Uh, we've grabbed three words that are, that are biblical concepts that are really kind of huge, but it boils it down to a few things. Worship is our relationship with God. Every Christian follower, every disciple of Jesus is just ever nurturing their walk with God. And yet he doesn't leave us alone, just me and God. He puts us into a family. And so that word community sort of takes all the one another's in Scripture and sort of wraps it up into that and says, grow in that. Grow in your relationship with other people. But it's not just about me and God and me and God's people, is it? God has blessed us so we can be a blessing to other people. That's what the word share is about. And if you don't have that point, do you see how worship and community have a point? They have a direction. They have a reason for existing. If not, you get stagnant. And churches that just go between God and us and potlucks and worship and Bible study and campouts amongst us, we miss the point, we get stagnant, and the church gets really sick. God never designed it that way. Every parent loves it when their kids instinctively share without being asked. Why? That's been imprinted on us by God. God's blessed us to be a blessing to other people. That's what the whole point of share is about. We have the words make disciples. Why, why is the word make disciples in red? Because Jesus said it. All right, some of you have a red letter edition Bible. Some of you look on your phone so long that you don't know what a red letter edition Bible is. You can Google it and find out. Here's what it is. Every word of Jesus is in red, in a red letter edition Bible, right? So make disciples is, is one of the things Jesus said. In a nutshell, we are to be disciples who are making other disciples. So if you want to just kind of boil down, that, that's, that's called the Great Commission. That's what, what God sent us out to do. Here's what today's focus is. Today's focus is this. How do we do that at our main occupation, your job or your school? If you're a student in a few weeks, 
then your main job is, is, is as a student right now. That's, that's sort of your occupation. Some of you are workers in the home. Some of you are workers outside the home. Um, on a form, when you see the word occupation, think of what you would check there or what you would write in there. That's what we're talking about today and how to be a disciple in those hours. Now, there's an enemy to this happening, and it's something called dualism. What's dualism? Dualism is simply this. It's the idea that there are religious realms. There's sort of a religious world that contains religious things. And then there's a, a separate world, which is the public uh, realms. And that's the sort of mundane stuff that we do and, you know, business and eating and sleeping and driving and, and our, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And, and the, the, the thought that these ought to be kept separate, that the um, religious realm is something personal and private. That ought to never intersect with our sort of uh, public realm where education and commerce might, might happen. Um, I was, I was um, a student in the public high school system all up until um, I went to, to Bible college. And uh, Bible college, I got a great shock, and that is that you can open a class time in prayer. I almost thought I was going to get arrested. I felt a little guilty for it, having been raised in the public school system. And I thought, wow, we can pray in school. What a novel idea. How cool is that? I was thoroughly indoctrinated with this idea that let's not muddy the waters of science and fact with our religious thought. Those are the kinds of messages that I received growing up at Country Lane Elementary, Rogers Middle School, Prospect High School, and West Valley College. So then I enter Bible college and things uh, turned around for me. But here's the thing. I began reading the Bible for myself my junior year of high school. And you know what happened when I started reading the Bible for myself? I saw through this two worlds idea. I saw right through it. Because what I began to realize was this. I began to realize that if truth is truth, it's God's truth. So all truth is God's truth. There's one world... And God is sovereign over all of it. He has knowledge over all of it. So for us to take and think that he somehow isn't sovereign over a part of it is false. I began to realize that sacred and secular labels in many ways dull this truth. Duality is deadly because unless you work for a church or a ministry, or unless you are studying theology, one might be tempted to think that their work or their studies, are somehow outside of their life with God. Shopping and eating and sitting in commute traffic and all these kinds of things. Is that under God's rule and reign as much as sitting in church on a Sunday morning? Here's a little duality test. Let me, let me know. This will just be between, between you and God. But let me know if you've ever had these kinds of thoughts run through your head. Because... My hunch is that we probably all struggle with this still. We, we, we have this thought that, that we might look at this and say, yeah, that, that isn't how it is, but we might live how, this way sometimes. Uh, maybe you think of yourself as a Christian with office hours, and you think, you know, I budget time for God every Sunday morning for an hour and 15 minutes, and most Wednesday nights for an hour and a half, and then I have a daily quiet time of about 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it is, and those are my office hours for God. If you kind of think in those terms, you might be falling prey to sort of a, a dualistic worldview. How about this one? You're on a youth trip, and you're driving in the car, and a song comes up, and someone says, Oh, you can't play that song. We're on a youth trip. 
That might mean that you have sort of a dualistic thought. Why can we play it in other settings, but not while on a youth trip? Am I right? How about this one? You go to work, and you think, you know, I know the pastor just talked to us last week about being truthful in all situations, but the pastor has no idea where I work or the kind of job I have. You might be suspect of sort of holding a dualistic uh, worldview. You might see a person and say, well, that girl must really love God because instead of a regular job, she's going to go off and be a missionary. All of these sort of paint a picture that we, we are using secular and sacred labels to sort of nudge toward the idea that God may not be interested in one part or the other. Let me show you my iPhone home screen for a second. On my iPhone home screen, I have two apps that are distinctly Christian that live on my home screen. Okay, Now, because I'm a, a pastor, um, it's required that we also have a folder for the Bible. So I have a folder for the Bible. So on my home screen, I have two apps and one folder that are distinctly Christian. The rest of my iPhone, there's nothing distinctly Christian about the apps or, or anything like that. Now, here's my question. Uh, duality says that God can rule in that folder and in those two apps. But over the rest of it, he either doesn't care or he doesn't really have access to it. That's a dualistic mindset. Now, pull back out to my home screen for a second. Does God care about my appointments in my calendar? Yeah. How about my contacts and who I hang out with and who I'm in relationship with? Absolutely. Does God see every photo and video that comes across my video screen? Absolutely. Does he care about it? Yeah. How about the blogs I read and the books that are located on my phone and the news articles and what I'm thinking and interacting with that? How about my wallet and some of the financial stuff? He cares about it all. So even in our phones, we can look at that and just say, there's only a few that are distinctly labeled sacred, and the rest I suppose we could label secular, but that's not helpful in understanding that God wants it all. When Jesus called disciples, he called for them to leave everything and follow him and to follow him all of the time. So to get your head around this, you're saying, wait, Jesus wants it all and he wants it all of the time. That's a lot. Yeah, it is. This is why Jesus said to count the cost. Before you follow me, understand what you're getting into. This is not a weekend hobby. This is a complete lifestyle change. If you wrestle with being a Christian all the time and bringing your Christian faith and your life with God into every aspect of your life, here's my encouragement to you. Keep wrestling. Keep wrestling. It's great that you wrestle with that. I know that many in this room are wrestling with this because you've um, you've shared in, in groups. You've called me for ethical questions. Hey, <clears throat> I'm really wrestling through this. I want to honor God with this, and I feel like I'm in a tight spot. What do you think? You've just sought some, some counsel in that or some prayer in that. Keep wrestling. You are not alone in this. Maybe you've struggled with things, and you know, one of the things that the book of James chapter 1 tells us to do is to ask God for the wisdom that we lack. Isn't that a great, isn't that a great in, invitation? Um, we, we all lack wisdom. So here's the invitation. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives how? Generously. 
Let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, this passage isn't specifically talking about duality that I was talking about before, but that double-mindedness is there. Do you see it? And it it leads to being unstable in all of our ways. You know, the reality is that if you're a Christian in here this morning, your time at work or at school is probably where you will shine the most. Most in this room spend upwards of 40 hours every week. That's eight mostly awake hours during the day that you are sitting in a classroom, that you are on the job, that you are out and about doing your occupation. We call it making a living. You're either working in the home or you're working out of the home or you're a student. If you're unemployed, by the way, today, your job is to be finding a job. And I know that you're out there hunting for a job, so you can substitute work for that being your job, right? But we all have an occupation. Now, those those hours sound like a lot of hours, but when you view it from God's vantage point, it sort of changes a little bit. Your job, whether it's a student or a work somewhere, is an assignment and sort of part of your life. And when you consider the fact that life is a temporary assignment, I mean, think about the the way the Bible describes our life is this way. It's a mist. It's a breath. It's a wisp of smoke. It's a shadow. Listen to Psalm 39. We are merely moving shadows, and all our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth not knowing who will spend it. Here's where I want to direct our attention this morning. You and I are here for a sneeze. When you see a sneeze, isn't it kind of gross? It kind of like makes you want to withhold God's blessing on that. You're like, I don't know if I should be blessing you after sneeze, but maybe you need God's blessing, so I'll double bless you. But anyway, when you see a sneeze, you realize that mist is our life. We're here today. We're gone tomorrow. Here's the question. Are we living life in those bulk of our waking hours at work or school in a way that God would have us? Now, here's what I recognize. I recognize that we have some kindergartners in here with us, and I'm always fantastically amazed at our church and the way that you guys can sit through a long, boring sermon from an adult like me. The adults are thinking, yeah, praise us too, Dave. Um, but here's, here's the kindergartners. You might want to do this. You might want to take a piece of paper and draw how you think God wants you to live at school. Because that might be more helpful than trying to get the words down and all that. If mom and dad want to help you fill in the blanks, then you can do that. But, um, but that might, might be. That's an invitation for the adults, too, if, if, you want to, if you want to draw your notes instead of, instead of take notes the old-fashioned way. Look at our passage this week. Colossians 3.23 says this. Whatever you do, that's a lot, whatever you do, it says work at it with all your heart as well for the Lord, not for men. And then verse 24 goes on to say, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Turning your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians for a minute. We just wrapped up 1 Thessalonians, but I want to show you a little follow-up snippet of what Paul talked about. Even though it's not explicitly called out all the time, the Bible talks a ton about business, about work, about your occupation. The Proverbs and Psalms are filled with it. The Old Testament examples are chock full. Jesus' parables are filled with it. In 1 Thessalonians, just look at the screen for a minute. 
First uh, Thessalonians chapter four, uh, Paul told us to aspire to hard work. He was talking to a young church and he was telling them that working hard with their hands was a good thing. He also said, take note of the example that we left for you, that we worked hard, that we toiled, that there was labor involved. Paul wrote about looking for Jesus' return and remember that some people stopped doing their occupation. They stopped making a living. And what happens when someone stops making a living? It puts strain on other people. So Paul had to write a follow-up letter in 2 Thessalonians to address some people who evidently thought the most spiritual thing they could do was sit on a mountaintop and look for Jesus to return. That's not what the Bible calls us to do. So he wrote some things to them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6, it says this. What I want you to listen to is about uh, his, his stern warning here, how serious this is to him. He says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. What's idleness? means the car's... In neutral, you're not moving, you're not doing stuff, you're sitting around. You're a slacker. Who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. What tradition? Well, it's the example that we left you when we planted the church. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and and labor. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you an example, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but as a brother. He's commanding the people to work hard and not be idle. He's pointing out that not being busy with your own business leads you to get up in other people's business, right? And again, we have all kinds of apps that allow us to have an opinion on everyone else's business all the time. It's sort of a pastime these days. Verse 13, he says that there's going to be a challenge to it. Stick with it. Don't grow weary in doing hard work. Uh, school is hard. Yeah. Work is hard. Yeah. Doesn't mean it's not good. Stick to it. And in verses 14 to 15, some really stern, severe warning. Why does he use this strong language? Because it must be really important. It must be deadly to be developing an attitude about work that's off, that's wrong. The title this morning is Good Work. And it means a few different things. We all know that we're commanded to good works as a Christian. If you're sitting in church and someone uses the word good work together, you might immediately think that, oh, yeah, yeah, we're commanded to do good works like good deeds. And that's certainly true. But what about just plain old work work? Can that be worship? Can that count as a good deed, as, as a good work? We're going to find that the answer is yes. 
Why is the O shaded? There's one O that's shaded gray. Why is that? Anyone want to take a stab at it? Yeah. Good work, working in a way that God lays out, is, is God work. doesn't matter what your occupation is. doesn't matter what title you might put in there. That is, that is God work if it's done as an act of worship before him. In whatever we do, we're serving as if we're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Then whatever your job title, unless it's blatantly sin, then change jobs, is God work. Finally this, don't we all love to hear good work? Hey, job well done. Good work. And we love to hear that. We love affirmations like that. Here's the question for a Christian. Do we know the target? Do we know what it is that God would say, good work, son, Good work, daughter. Do we know how to carry ourselves in our main vocation, school or work, in such a way that we know we're striving toward that, that we're aiming toward the good work God has us to? You know, here's something that we do often. Um, we go up to someone, and I happen to know this about Kel, but I might, I might meet Kel, and I'd say, hey, what's your name? My name's, my name's Dave. My name's Kel. And I'd say, oh, what do you do? And what do you do is an open invitation to begin to hear about what? about his job, right? Primarily. And so what Kel does is a lot of things. But in the context of that question, what that means is, what kind of work do you do? What is your occupation, right? And that's a valid question. That steers the conversation in some sort of way. But as I was thinking this week, I thought, you know, and sort of a, a deeper question, like like going further beyond that is this. Not just, hey, what do you do, Kel? But this, and I happen to know this about Kel on some level, although I've never shadowed him at work. I'm going off of his testimony. Um, but here's even a better question is, how do you do that work? Not just what you do, not just what your job title is, not just the list of things you do it, but how do you do that work, Kel? And then here's, a, here's, a, here's another one. Why do you do that work, Kel? Here's what, here's what I... Here's what I think. I think most of us are really obsessed with job titles and annual sales kind, kind, kinds of questions. When you run in this valley and you talk about people, they want to do this. And the Christian version of that, by the way, is this. What's your title and how many people go to your church? Right? It's the same thing. It's numbers and titles. And God measures things that are a lot harder to put in an annual report. A lot harder to sort of fit on a little business card or a job description God measures things like, like internal, like how, how you do that work is, is probably far more important than what, what your job is. Why you do that work, whether it's for personal affirmation, finding your identity, those kinds of things, far more important than your annual sales that year. And so getting to the heart of that, really thinking about these matters and how they fit in is important. Good theology of work uh, is, is important to have. What, what has God said about work? If you want to take some notes, jot these three, th- three things down. Number one is this. God is a worker. So to mimic our Heavenly Father as beloved children, we are going to be a worker because we've, we, we mimic our Creator. The past work of God was creation. The present work of God is his providence and redemption. And there's a future work coming where there's the restoration of all things. John chapter 5. 
Jesus said, my father is working until now, and I am working. Number two is this. God created us in his image. Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. Remember that from Genesis chapter 1? Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. You know what that's saying? That's saying work hard in the home, work hard in the field. God gifted us work. This is pre-fall. The job title that we have, the hard work that we have in the home and in the field, out of the home, was called very good. Genesis 2, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So what happens at the curse? It's not the invention of work all of a sudden, but it changes the nature of work. John MacArthur said it this way, Originally, man was a flower arranger, and the curse turned him into a plow horse. The fall did not introduce work. It changed its nature. Work neither began nor ceased with the fall. It just took a different shape. It went from being a righteous blessing solely to being a righteous blessing with a curse on top. Some of you have, have a hearty amen that's welling up in you right now, right? Because your job feels like that. There's a toil to it now. Doesn't mean that the original imprint is gone. It's just been changed. Here's a third reality. There is a dignity that comes from being made in God's image to work. I want you to consider monkeys for a second. I want you to consider the fact that monkeys don't draw out and release potential in other people. That's not what monkeys are capable of doing. I want you to think for a moment about plants. Plants don't cook or create symphonies or paint pictures. I want you to think about stars for a second. Stars speak of God's glory, but they never use written language to magically convey ideas and well up emotion with specific words. I want you to consider birds that are beautiful and they're created things, but they've never built an orphanage school that is pulling people off the streets and giving them hope of a better life. You know who does those things? People do. Do you know why people are capable of doing all those things? Because it's been stamped on us. We bear the image of God. And when you hear a symphony, when you eat an amazing meal, when you see a ministry that is pulling kids off the street and giving them hope, when you see a manager and a coach that draws things out in you and pushes things in you that you never thought you could do on your own, and you go, wow, that's awesome. That's because they are living out their God image bearing. That's what people do. Created things don't do those things. Here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to look at these four questions, and I want them to just sort of help you evaluate your own current job, or if you're a student about ready to enter another school year, be thinking about you as a, as a, as a student this year. Here's number one. Does my work reflect God's work? Back to our passage for a second. We're to work at it with all of our heart. It is the Lord Christ we are serving. So question one, does my work reflect God's work? Well, to answer that question, you have to know, how does God work? What is God's work like? Uh, we're image bearers. We have come after Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. So how did, how did God work? How did Jesus work? Uh, this is 
by far not an exhaustive list, but I just want to draw sort of four ideas out here for the sake of time. Number one is God is content in his work. He's not begrudging or complaining or kind of like, oh, man, off to work. God is content in his work. Think about Jesus. No matter what chore you're ever given, kids, it's never as hard as the one that the Father gave to the Son, Jesus Christ, is it? And yet, what did he do? He set his face toward Jerusalem to fulfill his mission. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the suffering of the cross. He completed his work. And even in the garden where he prayed, is there any way this can be removed from me? And yet, what? Not my will, but your will be done. Doesn't mean you have to enjoy it. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But what we see is a contentedness in working. It's a perfectly acceptable sin in the Christian church to gripe and complain about work and school nonstop. That happens all the time outside the world, right? How are things going? Oh, man, work's a bear. It's a perfectly uh, acceptable thing to do that nonstop here, but I think we're missing the boat if we do that. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Do all things, even work and school, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as stars. All things without grumbling or complaining includes chores and work and studies and yes, even your commute. It includes all of it. What if on our commute we began to just redeem the time? What if as we woke up and heard that annoying alarm clock that we want to throw across the room, then we remember it's a $600 phone so we don't do it. What if when we hear that, we say, God, thank you for giving me a reason to get up this morning. For a job to sit in traffic to go to. Thank you for two legs that are able to get out. Give me the energy and grace to see my tasks today, which are going to show up again tomorrow. And let me do it as an act of worship unto you. Chances are you'll need to pray that prayer more than once a day, right? I pray that in the morning, usually before my first cup of coffee. I'm already praying it a second time. God, I need more. The Apostle Paul wrote this in an era of the Greeks who would have been influenced by Homer. You know what Homer talked about? Homer talked about the idea that the made-up gods of Greek mythology, that's what mythology is, hated men. And you know how they punished them? They made them work. The mythological gods hated men, and so they made them work. They condemned them in their hatred to work. Viewed this way, work never rises above merely being endured. And so what happens is as a culture, we learn to cope. We learn to manage. We learn to just get to the weekend, right? Now, I want you to lift your gaze for a moment. I want you to think and just think, man, aren't we supposed to be transformed in our mind? Aren't we supposed to be renewed in how we think about things? Dream with me for a moment. What if we could actually thank God for Mondays? What if we could joyfully praise God for Mondays? Radical concept. I'm telling you, we're teaching radical truth at this church that's off the wall, but I think it's biblical. Maybe this idea of not being conformed but being transformed by changing our minds has no more urgent need than to change it during the nine to five hours during our work and school days. 
Here's the second thing about God is that he's industrious. God worked for six days in creation and he called it good. When I was a single guy, I read Proverbs 31 a lot. You know why? Proverbs 31 told me my target. This is the kind of woman that I want to have in my life. God says this is the kind of woman you should go after. So I studied Proverbs 31 more than my youth pastor told me to or my parents knew. I was reading that. I was reading that chapter. And in Proverbs 31, there's a lot of places that it talks about, about her being industrious. But Proverbs 31.13 says that she works with willing hands. She's not idle. She's probably not on that TV show, The Wives of whatever, Orange County or whatever thing. It's probably not, it's probably not that is the ideal. First Thessalonians, we just looked at. Second Thessalonians, we just looked at. It tells us to work hard. I sort of saw something interesting this week. Many of Paul's greetings at the end of his letters contain this phrase. Um, he commends people who worked hard for you. There's one place it just says, and thank Mary, a greet Mary, who worked hard for you. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool in the Bible? It's just, I was only mentioned one time, but it was someone who just worked hard. It's commended in scriptures that we are industrious. We are designed to create, to achieve, to accomplish, to commit, and to change the world. And that's a good thing. Here's another thing. God was generous in his work. When you look at the Garden of Eden, it shows God to be generous. Think about the sheer number of plants that exist in this world, of insects. The creativity uh, imagined from God to form all the different animals and the wide variety of birds. This morning I got an earful about astronomy and all the stuff going on in the skies that's just happening out there. God is generous in his work. He's not just generous in his work, but with his resources. He gives to all generously when we ask for wisdom. Aren't you, aren't you constantly finding that you pray for this to come true? And God in his generous, generosity not only gives you, you know, one thing of depleted now and later's uh, thing, but a whole second one on top of it. Right when you find yourself having a need met, you hear a story of someone who says, you know, as that need was being met uh, by God through me, I was enriched by that. It's just like God to be generous to both the giver and the receiver in any equation. This is how God is. God took this nation, Israel, and he says, I'm going to raise you up. And no one else is going to do it, so you can't boast. It's going to be totally me. But you know what? I'm going to pour blessing in on you. Not so that you can build storage units throughout the city under the freeways and store, 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 but so that you can share. I'm going to bless you, nation of Israel, so you can be a blessing to the entire world. I'm going to bless you, family, in your relationship so that that love and that relationship not is contained and you open your garage door and you close it quickly and you keep a self-contained thing and don't let anything in, but so that it can spill out and be shared with others. Here's my question for you. Workers, do you earn to bless or to store up? The money that you earn, are you earning that to bless. Now, it ought to start with your family. Do not neglect your family so you can give all your money away. That's wicked. God says so explicitly. Care for your family. But ask this question, how much is enough? I mean, really, how much is enough? Have you ever pondered that? That's a tough one, right? 
Because for most of us in this room, there's probably always someone can point to you and go, well, I don't have a, a house in Maui, and I don't do this, and I haven't bought a new car in a while. And so we can kind of, but, but ask that question, how much is enough? And, and do you earn to bless or to store up? How about students? Are you learning to bless other people or to store it up for yourself? Man, there's, there's a, a whole different way of coming at it. Here's, here's one more thing. God is restful in his work. What do I mean by that? On the opposite spectrum of being idle, okay? Here's idle. It's a slacker. It's someone who's not doing anything. They're not earning their keep. On the opposite spectrum of that is someone who is endlessly driven. They're ambitious with a capital A. They are always going and don't know how to stop and rest. Worker or student, do you know how to set it all down and rest? If you're not good at that, don't think it's godly. Don't laugh it off as, well, you know, I'm one of those workers who just can't put it down. There's probably a serious idol in your life. Um, what we're doing right here, every Sunday morning, we have this opportunity to just lay down our work. You know what I love about this church? We have bosses and their employees that worship together on Sunday morning. There's something called head-subordinate relationships. We find it all through Scripture. Leadership and followership is a good thing. It's designed by God. But it seems that when the family comes together and we all just sing and lift our gaze, when we hear God's Word preach, there's something about us that just, those lines don't disappear, like they don't matter, they're, they're gone completely. But I think they sort of fade on a Sunday morning where we can just lay down our titles. We don't really care your annual sales on a Sunday morning. We just lay those titles down. We're all brothers and sisters at God's family table, and we're thrilled that we've been invited in. Don't you get that sense? Isn't that picture of church? Isn't that how it ought to be? Now, Monday rolls around, and again, it doesn't mean those lines go away, but those have stronger influence elsewhere. But in this setting, there's something about it that we just say, I, I forget what my job title is. It doesn't matter. That's insignificant. It's so good weekly to just show up at church and just take a deep breath. What if your household just disciplined yourself to just go, as part of our Sabbath, as part of a recognition that I am not a machine that just is designed to go on and on and on and on and on until it breaks. I am a human being that mimics my creator and lays down my work for Sabbath. I rest. I recharge. I no longer care about my job and studies for a day. I'm going to just, I'm just going to pause and reset all of that. And there's something really, really good to that. Here's the question I have before we move on to question two for you. Do I give all my energy, creativity, passion, skill, and might to my job because I know it is the Lord Christ I am serving? Do I give all of my passion, creativity, energy, might, do, do I do that because I know it's the Lord Christ I'm serving? And you can fill in the or, right? Or, because this teacher is not really my favorite, I'm going to withhold. I'm going to not do as good. Because this boss doesn't really appreciate me, I'll show him, right? I'm going to do it this way. So that's question number one. Here's question number two. Does my work show the gospel? 
Whether you were a boss or a mid-level forgotten member of a company or the caboose, the little guy, the newbie, the person that just showed up on the job, you are a witness of grace received from a living God if you're a Christian. If you are a Christian in a company, on a job, in a family, you are a living witness showing off what it is to receive grace from the living God. Here's my question. What kind of sermons is your life preaching right now? Tomorrow morning, many of you will go jump into traffic line and you will get to a place at some point. And here's the question. What kind of uh, sermon is my life going to preach today? By how I do my job, by how I carry myself, what is being said of the God that I serve and love? I read a book by a guy named Tom Mercer called Day to 15. And uh, he just says, the world is smaller than you think. And here's what he says. He says, you and I might live on the same planet, but we don't share the same world. Because I won't even meet most of the people in yours. I want you to think about this assignment as a disciple for a moment. God gave this assignment through the mouth of Jesus Christ. Go and make disciples of the entire world. That's a pretty daunting task. That's a pretty radical assignment that we've been given. But then, God in his wisdom raises up Christians in all the different places that people live. And when you break it down and you say, what if I just focused on my world? The whole premise of the book is that there are about 8 to 15 people that most have that, that they inhabit this world with. What if you focused on making disciples, pouring into and blessing in that oikos, that, that intimate sort of family group of acquaintances that have one thing in common? You know what that one thing in common is? It's you. They may not even all know each other because they're from different realms of your life, but they're all connected to you. I find this exceedingly freeing. The people that you spend most amount of time with, you will have the best chance to reach with the gospel. So doesn't it make sense that we get squared away on our 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. or whatever your work schedule is, hours? Wouldn't it be a travesty to the mission of Jesus Christ if we paused our Christianity during those hours thinking it's too hard to cram my Christian faith into all that stuff? I don't know how to please Jesus and my boss at the same time, so I'm not even going to try. Man, that's a whole world of opportunity that would be lost. Now, here's the truth. Much of the time, you won't get to share Jesus or teach the Bible. If you do, you will probably end up getting fired. And your boss will tell you something like this. We don't pay you to teach the Bible. Now, here's what you should do if you get fired. You may want to consider your calling. If you're getting fired from jobs because you keep preaching Jesus and wanting to teach the Bible, maybe God's calling you into full-time ministry. I was a bank teller. And my, my goal, every customer, was, God, how can I bring you up in this conversation? How can I begin to share what I'm learning at San Jose Christian College with my next customer? Somehow I kept the job for six plus years, but I still worked at it. Eventually God said, all right, enough of that. Go and do this all the time. Here's the, here's the deal. You living as a Christian, your life will be distinct. It, it will just, it will have a different air to it. There are times that God will give you opportunities to open your mouth and share about him. Much of the time, it will just be your life. But when someone asks, 
hey, why didn't you sign that petition? Why are you different in the break room? Why don't you jump on the bandwagon of this? Be ready with an answer right then and there. Don't give a cop-out answer. Well, I'm just sort of nicer than you. Don't say that. That's just arrogant and untrue. Give glory where glory is due and say, you know what? God's come to my life. He rules over every part of it. And I live my life in, in light of him. And I, I'm, I'm just walking that. And he's told me I can't gossip. So I work hard at not gossiping. That's why. Have an answer at the ready. Here's number three. What dangers lurk in my job? If you're a student, what dangers lurk as a student on your campus? You know what I want you to do? I want you to make your own list. I'm I'm going to give you four that I came up with, but I think your list will be most pertinent. When you really start to think about your job, what are the dangers that lurk there? Now, there's the obvious things, right? Blatant temptation, okay? Blatant things that God says, this is wicked. People who do this will never inherit the kingdom of God. Know that list and don't do that stuff, right? Those things kind of lurk at every job, right? The temptation to lie and cheat and still just go read the Ten Commandments. There's all kinds of you know, wickedness going on in the office and at school. I'm not talking about those things, although those should be on the list, but those things we kind of know. Those are frontal attacks. I'm talking about like sort of subtle things that sort of sneak into our life. The whole idea that we begin to be more controlling than is healthy. We begin to have little compromises that go on. We begin working for the eyes of the teacher or the eyes of the boss rather than the eyes of the Lord who sees us at all times. Those kinds of things. Here's my list. I jotted down this one. One is distraction from real wealth. I think it's possible that because of the the vast number of hours of waking hours that we spend making a living, I think we can begin to be distracted of what's really valuable. That means we start to invest most in things that won't last. Are people more important than stuff? Say yes. Yes, because that's the answer. People are more important than stuff. Sometimes we can get that one mixed up. Sometimes we can begin to take that formula and just, and just flip it on its head. God, wealth, and status with God is more important than man, wealth, and status with men. Listen to Luke chapter 12. This is Jesus. By the way, a lot of Jesus' parables, you read them in their totality, it helps you form a worldview of work and studies. Here's Luke chapter 12. Then he told him a story, Jesus talking. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store up all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now, take it easy. Eat, drink, And be merry. But God said to him, You fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? And here's the kicker. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have riches in relationship with God. Do you see that parable as having relevance in the Silicon Valley? I think so. Here's the second one. Self-promotion. Self-promotion. Matthew 23, 11 says this, Jesus talking, The greatest among you 
shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is true in school, particularly the sports field for, for, for me. School and academics and clubs and drama, whatever God's gifted you to do, it's possible to take that instead of pointing it to God, doing it for yourself. It's certainly possible on the job to just be self-promoting yourself and over and over, not humbling yourself, but lifting yourself up. Here's another one that made my list, loving money. Isn't the love of money the root of all kinds of evil, right? It's not money itself, it's the love of money that causes that. Luke 16 says this, Jesus talking, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And that's a good one to settle in your heart and resettle in your heart. In just a bit, we're going to take an offering. There's something celebratory and worshipful to say, God, you've entrusted me with resources. It's a joyful heart that I give you, that I give to your work. I'm, I'm joyful about turning some of those resources back over to you and, and steer it in those ways. It's a declaration that money doesn't have our heart. Here's one more. I just called it peer pressure. Earlier in the week, I called it politics. Then I thought about the whole idea of getting revenge. Uh, and then I thought, thought about how we stoop to levels of those around us. It's all of that wrapped up into one. It's the whole idea that there's a certain office politic. There's a certain school politic amongst your friends. There's a certain way of doing things. And as a Christian, it's so easy to just sort of go down to the lowest common denominator level. Again, the words of Jesus, radical teaching about how to treat those in your cutthroat environment that you live in most of the week. Here it is. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love only those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who... Uh, those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those to whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, therefore, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. Remember the whole idea of praying without ceasing from 1 Thessalonians? Do you see how if we are walking the path that God calls us to walk, we'll never, ever be short of prayer. We'll never have a reason not to be in prayer. When I think about this, I say, God, this is overwhelming to try and live this way all the time. But this is what you called me to. This is how you lived. It's overwhelming. Help me. God, help me. That's the ongoing breathing prayer. 
No matter where you work or go to school, there lurks all kinds of danger, but there also learns all kinds of opportunity. Here's the last one. What hidden opportunities are in my job? I want to speak directly to the students with this, and here it is. One is to develop discipline of good followership. As a student, you have all kinds of opportunity to be bossed around by teachers. Amen? My PE coach was the best at that. He just barked commands at us all the time. Shh, sit down, line up, all that kind of stuff, right? Nonstop. You have an opportunity every single day that you're in school to develop what it is to be a good follower. And you can do it as unto the Lord. You can say, God, I want to develop characteristics to be that kind of person. What if you focused on being the kind of student that if you were a teacher, you would want to have in your class? That flips it around. Here's another one. Work out your integrity. People ask if you work out, say, yeah, I work out. Can't you tell? You've got to be working on your integrity all the time. Do you think there are opportunities every single day that you're at school to have your integrity tested? Absolutely. When others cheat, don't. When everyone else seems to be doing blank, check in with God and see if you're allowed to do that. And if you aren't, don't. If you are, then go enjoy it with them. The way you carry yourself ought to look completely different. Here's another one. Every single one of you at school has the opportunity to open your mouth. One of my greatest regrets at Prospect High School is that I didn't open my mouth more. You know when I started opening my mouth for my faith at West Valley College? I did not share boldly my junior and senior year like I, like I wish I would have. Open your mouth. You're going to have all kinds of opportunities to take a stand and open your mouth and bless people with it. Um, here's, here's one more. Love the little guy. Um, you have a whole world of contacts to be around. You have a whole group of people at your school that you're able to love as you would be loved. And here's what I would say. Start with the person who is least loved. Go find the person who's most vulnerable. Here's the cool thing. There's very little competition for friendship when someone's sitting alone, right? So even if you're not that good of a friend, you show up. If you're the only friend in their life, you know, there's, there's not that much competition. You're like, look, I'm your friend, right? So you can start small. Start there. My wife is exceedingly good at this. She has always had a heart for someone who's sitting alone, for someone who's very apparently different and talked about. And she goes after those people. She gravitates towards those people. That is a great place to begin. Families, let me challenge you to have a conversation about these four questions this week. Parents, you know what you ought to do with your kids? You ought to share your own struggles at work of how you have tensions with this and how you're working through them. Kids, you ought to be talking with your parents about your struggles at school. You both can share insight with one another and learn from each other. God calls us to hard work and then he gifts us to follow through on that. There's coming a day, catch this, when your job will be over. No more. Done. Assignment completed. And all of us in this room who possess the Holy Spirit long to hear this. Good work. Good work. Enter into your rest. Let's live our life right now so that we can live that way. Let me pray. God, just now as we celebrate you in song, as we celebrate you in giving, God, I pray that you would be praised and lifted up in our heart of hearts internally where no one sees but you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.